0: Anyway, do you know the old story of the two young brothers that were in church um, back in the day, way before smartwatches, I guess, uh, with the way the story goes. And it was the first time that the younger brother had been into the big people church. So he kept leaning over to his older brother asking for advice about what was happening. He was confused sometimes. And as the minister got up to give the message, he took his nose out and laid it out on the pulpit and then uh, took his watch off and set it beside him. And the younger brother said, Why does he, what does it mean when he takes his watch off? And his older brother says, absolutely nothing. Anyway, uh, I feel that I should take some time at the beginning here to introduce myself. Um, many of you know me, some of you know me maybe a little too well, um, but possibly quite a few people don't. Um, last week when Pastor Josh introdu- uh, said that, announced that I was going to be speaking today, a young person went to, said to their dad, who is this Terry Criscamp guy? And uh, his dad said, oh, that's the fella that did the Rudolph rap at the Christmas Sea event last year. And some of you who are laughing were there for that and others are going to just have to come to next year's event, I guess. But I got some street cred with that, obviously. (laughs) But um, it seems like uh, there might be some disappointment because I'm not rapping this morning. Um, Anyway, we've got this amazing thing happening at West Heights where it seems every week there's new people, which is so wonderful. And maybe new people online looking too. Um, And many of you have started attending um, more recently are coming actually more regularly and are starting to get involved. So it's just a, a great thing. But Some of you, many of you maybe don't really know me. So let me give you a a quick bio. Um, I started following Jesus when I was 21, way back in 1978. So if you want to figure out my age, you can do the math. Not right now. Um, I grew up going to a Lutheran church, and later, as our own family grew, we started attending a missionary church, and we did that for about 25 years. Uh, My wife, Beth, and I started attending West Heights about 12 years ago now. Um, My career was mostly teaching in the public school system, uh, all. Actually, it was all teaching in the public school system, um, I, although I did te- work at a hospital for a bit. And then mostly I was teaching grade four. Um, but when I retired in 2014, our pastor at the time, Todd Lester, asked if I'd like to come on on a volunteer, part-time basis uh, as part of the staff and oversee the house churches, what we call our small groups here. And I've been involved regularly leading and singing and playing music. People maybe have seen that. Um, and Beth and I, every uh, month or so before the vid happened, uh, we were downstairs uh, singing with the children. We just love that. And I'm hoping to get back to that at some point. In 2020, I did um, some courses, finished some courses that allowed me to receive my pastoral license with the Be in Christ Church of Canada. I have four adult children and uh, six lovely grandchildren and it's great to see Lindsay here cheering me on. Uh, Four girls and the youngest are twin boys who are just four months old now. But probably one of the most important things to know about me is that I've been on a grief journey for the past nine and a half months. Uh, my dear wife Beth passed away on Easter Sunday last year. Um, so our family and friends, and, and many of you here knew her, um, were navigating the challenges of life without the one who uh, gave us so much love and encouragement. But the last thing you should know is that two weeks ago today, I arrived back from Israel. I was on a trip to Israel, a 10-day tour, uh, focused on the life of Jesus. It was definitely the trip of a lifetime for me. Um, I kind of said I went in honor and memory of Beth, actually, Uh, and it's the basis for a lot of what I'm going to share today. It was co-led by a musician and author that I've appreciated for a long time. His name is Michael Card, and I expect most people don't know him, but he's um, put out like 30 albums and 20 and 20, over 20 books. Um, so he's been prolific. Uh, Beth and I began listening to his music way back in the 1980s and, and 90s more so. And I'd say in some ways he's more a Bible teacher than a musician, although he plays guitar and, um, and piano beautifully. Um, I wish one day I could play like him. Um, But during that time, he wrote a number of records, as we used to call them back in the day, uh, that were based on many of the books of the Bible. Eventually, he began writing his own books, often to accompany or expand on what he had learned as he was studying the scriptures to create an album of music. But about 10 years ago, there was a shift, or for for me anyway, when I started reading him again, he took time to write uh, four books, one on each of the Gospels and music to accompany it. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he called his books on the Gospels the Biblical Imagination Series. And in it, he'd say that he's trying to bridge the distance that we tend to have between our heads and our hearts. So maybe you've heard preachers talk about that 18-inch gap between our head and our hearts, and I guess it's 46 centimeters in Canada. Um, I think of this difference between head and heart kind of like the difference between thinking and feeling or intellect and emotions. And I know scientists would say, you know, actually your emotions you know, are centered in your brain or and that makes sense as well but for thousands of years people have used this head heart picture and i'll use it today because it just seems easier to follow than talking about integrating our cerebrum and our hypothalamus Um, i think the head heart analogy (laughs) the heart heart analogy also makes sense if uh, you've ever been in love or if you've ever lost someone that you love so maybe i'll start there to explain what i mean by this difference between head and heart uh, the difference between my wife Beth and I. Uh, over the years of our relationship, uh, we often said how God brought two very different people together. Uh, and maybe that resonates with other couples here. That the things you might find lacking in your own life, you see in another person and are attracted uh, to them because of that. And it is a wonderful thing to experience, but then trying to live that out day to day can be challenging, of course. So I'm wired more to live in my head, as they say. So I like to read, like to learn new things, gain new insights. And, and Beth was definitely a people person um, who was very sensitive to the needs of others and always looking for ways to help. Um, it, was no mis- uh, it was no surprise that she became a nurse uh, in her career. And these differences would show up in lots of ways in our marriage. But I was a bit surprised when I noticed it happening in small groups, in house churches. Uh, I, I'd love the study portion of the meeting, and she'd find meaning in the prayer time. Uh, I'd get excited about some new theological idea that got shared about how we can think about God. And, and Beth's loving heart would focus on how do we live that out? Um, how do we treat others So, I was caught up in thinking about God, and she was more interested in living her faith out in her life. Um, In a way, you could say, I was self-focused, I was kind of asking, what can I learn? And and Beth was other focused how can I help someone? So that hopefully shows maybe some of how the difference between head and heart can play out. But the big question is, how do we actually bridge that gap or integrate the two? And Michael Card strongly suggests that it's through the imagination. He says, we need to read the Bible at the level of the informed imagination, that this is how the Holy Spirit works to reconnect our hearts and minds. The scriptures in Jesus are trying to recapture our imagination, Card would say. So is it any wonder that Jesus taught using parables, telling stories that required people to use their imaginations? Now, when we read or listen to stories, we often automatically use our imaginations to fill in or visualize ideas that are spoken or that even might be left unspoken. When I was teaching, I really enjoyed reading novels aloud to my class, and the children, of course, seemed to like that too. And once in a while, I would show the movie that the book was based on as a way of comparison. And It always felt like a win when the children said, oh, I like the book better than the movie. And it kind of pointed that the director and actors just couldn't portray the, the story as well as they had imagined it themselves. So this is what I want to suggest today that we do with the Bible. We use our imaginations to enter more deeply into the stories we find there, especially in the Gospels. Now most writers today, if they're telling a story, usually spend more time describing, some of the time at least, spending um, it describing the setting of the books or the characters. Unfortunately, the gospel writers don't do that very much. It wasn't a priority for them. But this is where our imaginations can help us, but not just any wild ideas that might pop into our heads. Card says, use an uh, an informed imagination. So look at the information that might help us picture what might be happening in a story. I'm proposing that when we come to the Bible, we read it both carefully and creatively with our mind and our heart. So let's take some examples from each of the Gospels and apply an idea for engaging our imaginations for each. The first suggestion for using our imagination is to ask, what is the setting for this passage? Where is it taking place? In the book of Matthew, the main setting actually is the area of Galilee. It's where the ministry of Jesus begins and ends, and it's also kind of the central hub for all that he did. The village of Capernaum, which is right on the northern shore of Galilee, is where he decided to live after leaving Nazareth. And in Matthew 4.13, it's called his own town. So some say Matthew could actually be called the Gospel of Galilee. Let me read a description from Card's book, The Nazarene. The beauty of Galilee is beyond words. In contrast to the desert surrounding Jerusalem to the south, in Judea, Galilee is green and fertile. I like to think of it as Jesus' world. Galilee is also the major flyway between Africa and Europe. Flocks of every imaginable species of bird are funneled over the verdant countryside. Storks and cranes pass through the country twice a year on their way to winter in Africa or to escape the heat and nest in Europe. There are also the indigenous birds that stay for the most part. Beautiful, green, long-tailed parakeets, iridescent kingfishers and larks, Egyptian vultures and cormorants. My favourite is the wagtail which is and does exactly what his name implies. It makes me wonder if Jesus had a favorite bird. Then there are the orchards, the vineyards, the figs, and the olives, for Galilee is an amazingly fertile land. The fields are a marvelous mixture of impossible rockiness and fertility. The contours of those green hillsides, they were his world, a beauty his eyes took in in every morning. And the sunsets, Galilee is a place of almost daily, magnificent sunsets. And finally, there is the lake, Kinnereth, or Galilee, or Tiberius. It's almost as if it is so beautiful, no one could decide on what to call it. The shoals of fish, the glistening reflections of sunrises and sunsets, even the comfortable, comprehensible size of it. Some see the outline of the shoreline in the shape of the human heart. And that makes sense. The lake is the beating heart of Galilee and the heart of Jesus' world. So hearing that description may help you to imagine what's like in that area. I can attest to the beautiful sunsets and to the many crops grown there. I can even say that the fish tasted pretty good. They called this St. Peter's fish, a taliapa. taliapia. But most of my family, they couldn't believe that I actually ate that. Um, If you know me, you'd be surprised too. But if you start to imagine the shores of Galilee as being covered in sand and beaches, you'll be mistaken. Uh, Because even though there might be sand shipped in in a couple places, the edge of the lake is covered in stones like these. Uh, Much of the land around Galilee is formed from volcanic remains of basalt, a black rock. At one of the ancient ruins around the lake, we were shown this first-century manger in the front there. It doesn't look like the manger you probably imagined from the Christmas story. Uh, now, in Judea, which is further south and is more desert-like, there's not much basalt. It's more limestone. So our guide said that the, the manger would have looked like this, but it would have been a white rock, not black rock. It wouldn't be wood, he said. He said our, a goat would eat a manger made out of wood. Oh. <laughs> The Sea of Galilee, uh, shown in the next slide, um, just to get that outline. You see that heart shape? That's so interesting. Uh, If we compare it to a lake we might know, like Lake Ontario, it's it's really quite small. It's just over 50 kilometres to go around Galilee, and Lake Ontario covers over 1,000 kilometres if you went around the shoreline. Um, Galilee would be a little bit smaller than Lake Simcoe, if you know that area of the province. So obviously because I've been able to visit uh, some of the actual places where events from the Gospels happened and do it so recently, I have this advantage, of course, in imagining the setting. I actually have vivid memories that I'm sure will come back to me as I read about places in the Bible. And I'd encourage you to consider a trip to the Holy Land if you can make it work um, sometime in your life. I mean, I waited till I was much older. But, uh, and in fact, our denomination is trying to do an annual trip Uh, every year in January going forward. So it's something to consider. And right now, actually, there are people in the air. Four people from our church are in the air right now flying back from their uh, 10-day tour. But if you can't go, there are other ways to help engage our imagination to picture the settings of these stories. Uh, There are certainly thousands of photos available online and probably many videos about the geography of Israel. And you can read descriptions like I read. Lots of books like Michael Cards or Study Bibles that give wonderful descriptive details about what the gospel authors are writing about. So for the second idea, let's look at a story from Mark. This is from chapter 5, beginning in the second half He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So how do we read a passage like this in a way that engages our imagination? To read it carefully and creatively. Well, one way is to ask good questions that will make us think more deeply about what's going on. Like, what does it mean that she was bleeding for 12 years? One thing it implies is that she's undergone all sorts of medical treatment. Let me read from um, Card's commentary. When we read about what passed for medical care in Jesus' day, this woman's ordeal becomes clear. One cure for bleeding was to dig an oak grain out of cattle dung and force the patient to swallow it. Not only did her condition worsen as a result of these therapies, she was now broke, having spent all her money on doctors. Imagine a severely anemic woman, exhausted, desperate, and at this moment afraid. But why afraid, he asked, which is another good question. Well, because she has heard the rumor that if she can touch the fringe of Jesus' prayer shawl, she will be healed. But she knows that if she touches him and is discovered, she could be accused of rendering him unclean. Her bleeding was not simply, did not simply make her weak and poor. In the context of first-century Judaism, she has been cut off from her community by ritual uncleanness that has lasted 12 years. So I find more detailed descriptions like that help me to understand and empathize, and it just draws me into the story more deeply. Another way to engage with the scriptures is to look for unique words, which we'll look at more carefully in the next section, but apparently this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus addresses somebody by the word daughter, which is very interesting. So can you imagine the tenderness that he uses in this affectionate and gentle family term as he responds to her trembling body and voice? So one last way to imagine or reimagine this story is through art. When we were visiting the town of Magdala on the shores of Galilee, we went into a more modern church there. But in the basement, we entered a room where this painting spanned one of the long walls. I'll get out of the way so you can see it a bit better. It was bigger than that in the church. And it kind of took my breath away when I first saw it. I'm not sure if you can can gather what's going on there. Um, this is by, it's called The Encounter, it's by an artist named Daniel Cariola, and um, I didn't catch it at first, but my son pointed out that this is really, uh, this unique perspective is, is really the perspective of the woman, what she would have seen. So our third example comes from the Gospel of Luke and focuses on one verse uh, in chapter 5. It's verse 26. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Now, the context of this verse is that Jesus had just healed the lame man who had been lowered through the roof of the house where he had been teaching by those friends that were helping the lame man. So this is what people were responding to and were so amazed by. Uh, Michael Card calls uh, his book on Luke the gospel of amazement uh, because he says the gospel is just filled, if you are looking for it, it's filled with people being amazed, and even Jesus is amazed at one point. And this verse perfectly illustrates that because there's at least three words related to amazement in it. And that's the third idea for engaging our imagination I want to talk about, to dig deeper into interesting words. As we start exploring special words in a passage, the scene we're imagining can become richer and more detailed. I'd like to look at the word that is translated remarkable in this verse. In other versions, Uh, They use the word amazing or strange or even extraordinary or unimaginable. The Amplified Bible is a really good version for examining words because it usually gives you more than one choice. It gives you multiple words. For this word, they include wonderful and incredible. So you've got to ask, what's going on with this word? That's seven different English words to translate one Greek word. And uh, I think that it probably has something to do with the fact this is the only time in the New Testament that we find this word. And the word is paradoxus in Greek. And you might recognize it uh, as it's very close to our English word paradox. In fact, Michael Card said we should translate this section as reading, we have seen paradoxical things today. And maybe that's the best because it's the closest to the original word. So if we dig deeper into this word paradoxus, we see even more new ideas emerge. Because the root of this word um, means glory. And it actually appears near the beginning of the verse. Everyone was amazed and gave doxa to God. They said, we have seen paradoxus things today. So doxa means to give glory. And paradoxus means things you wouldn't expect to give glory to God. So Card points out that this verse seems to introduce a long section of Luke of stories that all center on the unorthodox or paradoxical way that Jesus works to show God's great love for this world. There are about seven different examples over the next couple chapters and uh, includes uh, the calling of a hated man, a hated tax collector, Matthew, to become a disciple and healing on the Sabbath and calling people to love their enemies. Um, So carefully looking at interesting words in a Bible passage uh, can help us engage our imaginations in new ways. And you don't need to know Greek to learn these things. You just have to find someone like a trusted author who does. Um, Or use the study Bible or the Amplified Version as well. Our last way of using our imagination to engage both our head and our heart comes from the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. And I've asked my daughter-in-law, Laurel, to come to read the passage for us.
1: On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him.
0: Thank you. So the context, if you're not familiar, it's a very familiar story, but it's um, about the raising of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus, right? That's the context there. When Michael Card read this passage in a chapel in Bethany, (laughs) where this took place, I was deeply moved when he pointed out this fact. That Jesus met the individual needs of both Mary and Martha by responding to each of them in a way that recognized what their hearts were looking for in their grief. Martha needed someone to talk to, right? And Mary just needs somebody to cry with. Later, someone pointed out, I think only an artist would see that. A theologian couldn't, but maybe a, se- a sensitive theologian could. Uh, I think this is what could be called bringing your heart to a passage or your emotions or trying to identify with what's happening in the story and how the characters might feel. For me, it struck deeply because of the grief journey I've been on, and not just me, my family and and friends and some of you sitting here who are loved by Beth and and love Beth. Um, It reminded me of how that journey really is different for everyone, that what we need is different and what we need can also change and that Jesus is with us at each stage. My point here is that when we open ourselves up to ways where the Bible can connect and speak into our life, We're engaging both our head and our heart through our imagination. So as I was writing that last section, I got a little choked up, which probably shouldn't be a surprise, right? But I'd say that shows that my heart was also at work along with my head as I was writing. This kind of thing may happen to you when you write or read and you are brought to tears or laughter. It happened to Paul and other of the uh, authors of the epistles as they were writing letters to Christians in the first century. Sometimes they'd just pause in the middle of some, writing some deep theological truth and they'd give praise to God because what they believed was alive and burning in their hearts. And I hope you've had experiences like that where you're reading or listening to the Bible sometimes you just have to pause because you sense speak, God speaking to your heart. I believe that as we continue to use our imaginations, engaging both our heads and our hearts, using some of these ideas I've highlighted today, I hope that our interactions with the scriptures will go deeper and be even more meaningful. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the Bible and the Gospels especially, how they have spoken into our lives and how they've brought us to an understanding of Jesus and your great love for us. And we would pray for continued insight, Lord, as we, as we come to the scriptures, as we come to your word and bring our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength to, your word, to our reading of your word and listening to your word. And pray that you would continue to speak to us and change us um, into uh, the people that you want us to be as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I finish, I want to say I, I do have books to share. I'm willing to share. Um, if this, any of this resonated with you or piqued an in interest, uh, I have some of Michael Card's books that I'd love to lend out that you could explore further. Or if you'd like to have your own stone from the Sea of Galilee to help you imagine what it's like there, you can come talk to me after the service, and uh, I, I have some to give out if you want. I, I don't think I broke any international laws by bringing those back. But... <laughs> But I'm not sure, you know. I think it stopped, but they didn't know. Um, In closing and as a benediction, I'd like to share one final thought. We've already seen how art can help us to use our imagination and nurture that head-heart integration. And I mentioned that Michael Card is a musician. Um, There's a simple song of his that has meant so much to our family for a long time now. The words come straight from the Bible, and you'll know them right away. Uh, This is a song that he put onto a children's album over 30 years ago, and it's one that we began singing to our own children each night when we tucked them into bed. Uh, It became a tradition that we followed for many years. But it's not just a children's song. Uh, He used it to close concerts for many years, and it continues to find its way back into our lives on important occasions, including at Beth's graveside last year. We sang it over her. So I know my son, too, has uh, continued this tradition with the next generation by singing it to his girls at bedtime. It's just become such a meaningful song uh, to our family, and I'd love to share it with you and uh, encourage you to consider adopting it as your own, if you like. So I'm going to sing the first verse to you, and then we'll sing it together, okay? The Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, and give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace forever. Will you stand with me and sing that with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace forever. And give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace peace, peace forever. Thanks for being here today. God bless you.